It's good to be here in the house of the Lord <clears throat> again this morning. Welcome to each one of you. Back in um, <clears throat> 2017, I took my only, uh, only sabbatical since I've been ordained in, since 96, and that was a three-month sabbatical. And I went into that with certain expectations, hoping for refreshment, relaxation, um, working on projects at home, and even getting away sometimes weekends and so forth. <clears throat> Other than our previously postponed 25th anniversary trip to Ireland for 10 days, pretty much nothing went as planned. Um, within several days of getting home from Ireland, my dad was hospitalized. <clears throat> never to return home. And over the next six weeks, uh, we made three trips to Kansas and spent about half of that time out there with my parents, um, with my dad. And then my mom ended up having some health issues as well. And she ended up in the hospital. And then my sabbatical ended about two weeks after the dad's funeral. And while I would never choose to, to have that, what my sabbatical was, I do see the hand of God in that, and that it allowed me to give my full focus and attention to my parents during that difficult period of time. Sometimes we, what we plan and look forward to looks significantly different than we anticipated, and when we look carefully, I, I think that we can see God's hand in these circumstances. And while I don't begin to equate my experiences six years ago with that of the Apostle Paul's, I do see some parallels as well. And this morning, I want to continue our study in the book of Philippians, uh, looking at the last part of chapter 1. And I've entitled the message, For the Sake of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> As a bit of a recap um, from my last sermon, as well as giving a little bit of a setting here of the Philippian letter, I want to just remind you that Paul had no intention of traveling to Europe or to Philippi on this missionary journey until God intervened and with the call to go to Macedonia. And as a result, this first church in Europe was established in Philippi. And the story of the beginning of this church is found in Acts 16, where we read about Lydia, and then the imprisonment of Paul and Silas, and their miraculous deliverance from, and the jailer's conversion there. Philippi was a small town of maybe about 10,000 people, similar to that of Warrington. There was no synagogue, and apparently few, if any, Jews lived in this area. So Paul was establishing a church in a brand new area, uh, unlike anything else that he had done previously in his work. But he apparently developed a unique bond with this group of believers. And that is what we see in the letter to the Philippians. Um, it's a powerful but also very encouraging letter, overflowing with joy. <clears throat> It's unique in that Paul is not correcting doctrinal error in this letter, 
whether there's con or conflicts in the church, but it is simply a letter to encourage other believers. And while it is saturated with joy and references to rejoicing, Jesus and the gospel are really at the center of Paul's emphasis uh, here in this letter and the focal point of the letter, and ultimately the underlying reason for the joy. As we saw last time, there's a joyful koinonia or fellowship or connection that Paul expressed here with these Philippian believers. It wasn't based on a social or mutual interest or some fake or superficial emotion, but rather it was a profound kinship and affection because of their shared love for Jesus Christ and his redemptive work in their lives. Paul continues sharing what it means um, to deeply love Jesus, that it even changes the way that you view challenging circumstances that we find ourselves in. <clears throat> First in his personal life, and then also leaving a challenge for the Philippian believers. So let's, um, if you would, turn your Bibles to chapter 1, and I want to read verses 12 through the end of the chapter. So let's stand together as we read this. <clears throat> Philippians 1, verse 12, from the English Standard Version. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers have become confident in the Lord in my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I, that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, I will, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as is my eager expectation and hope, and I will not be at all ashamed. But with full courage now and now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, 
But of your salvation and that from God, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. You may be seated. <clears throat> this is a long text, and we're not going to uncover nearly everything in here, but I just find it fascinating as I, I read this, Paul's response to what was going on in his life at that time. In the heart of Paul, Paul wanted the gospel to be spread wherever he went. And so even when his plans were changed and going, he went to Macedonia instead of Asia like he had planned, he continued to proclaim the gospel. He ended up in prison with Silas a short time after arriving in Philippi. They were singing at midnight and the doors opened. So again, just his response there. And now Paul's writing this letter of encouragement from prison. And no doubt that's another unplanned diversion in his ministry. So it's not what he intended to be doing, but it's what, where he found himself. So the first three verses, verses 12 to 14, we, we see that Paul is looking to advance the gospel from his prison cell. <clears throat> and while using his own situation as an example, he doesn't give us any details about really what's going on. He simply states a vague, what has happened to me? Um, he, he said, I want you to know this, but I mean, what has happened to me really? But the focus is immediately on Christ and what he, God is doing through him rather than what he ended up experiencing here. And he addresses the Philippian believers as brothers. And I, this is true in much of Paul's writing, but it's particularly true in this writing that this really carries the meaning of family or siblings. And so another way of reading this would be, I want you to know, family, that what's happened to me um, has already served to advance the gospel. And so there's an affectionate tone in which he's wanting his church family to know that something happened, even though it wasn't what was planned, it me it's a means of advancing the gospel while here in prison, and uh, perhaps even chained up at this point. We don't know for sure, or it's not stated here. <clears throat> History isn't clear where Paul was in prison. Many assume it was in Rome, which we know was the location of a later imprisonment, but some believe that this, might, this imprisonment might have been in Ephesus. Um, but the location is really not so much so important as understanding Paul's response to this inconvenience and discomfort of imprisonment. He turned a difficult situation into an opportunity and made the best of it. He made sure that the imperial guard heard about King Jesus and the message of the gospel, which, as you recall, was a subversive type political message to the Roman authority. Um, and it, it, it threatened the sovereignty of Rome. Uh, literally, 
Romans were calling Caesar is Lord. Caesar is king. And Paul was doing that, saying Jesus is Lord. Jesus is king. And so those kinds of statements were perceived as political threats. And this, the imperial guard, were elite soldiers that were loyal to Caesar. And they would have been more familiar with the language of the good news of Caesar or the gospel of Caesar. And here Paul is proclaiming the gospel of Jesus. And they couldn't ignore this message being constantly talked about by this prisoner that they were responsible to guard. But then it says not only them, but all the rest. And I don't know exactly who all that includes. Um, I, I expect it was unbelievers, other unbelievers or other prisoners in the prison. Uh, so Paul had this unique and captive audience while in prison that he wouldn't have had anywhere else. And he was engaging with them and telling them about Jesus Christ. Because of this, the surrounding Christians, not in prison, whether this was in Rome or Ephesus, were hearing about Paul's courageous engagement with those around him there in the prison, and they became more motivated to speak up more boldly for Jesus. And so there was a, a ripple effect here as well, and they were doing so without fear because they saw what Paul was able to do and willing to do. The challenge, you know, for us, do we have the courage to speak boldly for Jesus without fear, especially in those adverse circumstances that did not go at all as planned? Thinking back six years ago, I remember on our 26th anniversary, Dad was moved, and Bonnie's birthday, Dad was moved to hospice care in, uh, before he died a few days later. The nurses in the hospice, actually no, in the hospital where he was being transferred from, made the comment that they have never seen anyone so at peace or even upbeat about being moved to hospice care, knowing that there was no, nothing more they could do. And I thought that's just an example, again, of the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ when we allow it to just simply be a part of who we are. In verses 15 to 18, then, we see that Paul also wants to see the advance of the gospel even if it's done with ulterior motives. Not only did Paul end up in prison, but some then took advantage of this and used Paul's imprisonment as a means of drawing an attention and focus on themselves and putting down Paul or speaking negatively against him. Who would be doing this and why? Now, Paul does emphasize that some are sharing the gospel of Jesus out of goodwill and even love. And so there were those that were doing so in a good way because they know that Paul had been stopped 
from doing so more broadly, and they wanted to continue and make sure that the spread of the gospel was not stopped. <clears throat> so it's logical to conclude that these were fellow Christians doing so with pure motives and out of, out of love for Jesus, those that were, are spoken of here as um, doing it out of goodwill and out of love. <clears throat> However, who preaches Christ, which is what is stated here, from envy and rivalry and selfish ambition. Now, I will say professing believers certainly do have the capacity to do so. Not that they should, but they do. When they or we take our eyes off Jesus and begin comparing ourselves to others there is certainly the capacity in each one of us to act out of envy or rivalry or selfish ambition, whether we are willing to admit it or not. We do have that capacity. My initial reading of this assumed that this was the type of people that Paul is referencing here, and it may be. We don't know. However, several commentators pointed out that the, those who were preaching Christ with raunchy attitudes and motives may actually have been pagan unbelievers who were so delighted to see Paul in prison that they were bragging about it to everyone else, and in, the, in that means actually sharing who Jesus was and, and a bit of the gospel message. I don't know if that's the case or not, but these ordinary pagans would have heard that Paul was arrested, and it becomes the talk of the town and the gossip in the streets, and everyone's talking about it. N.T. Wright, in his commentary, Paul for Everyone, the prison letters, imagines what this may have looked like. Have you heard they'll be saying to each other, they've caught that strange fellow who's been going around saying there's a new king, a new emperor. And you won't believe it. This new king turns out to be a Jew whom they crucified a few years ago. And this jailbird is saying that he's alive again and that he's the real Lord of the world. Now, obviously, this is all imagination. But it's possible that these pagans were actually denigrating Paul, but in the meantime, exposing others to Jesus and who he was. The intent of these pagans talking in such a way certainly would have been to convince people that Paul is truly a lunatic and needs to be kept locked up. But then Paul's reaction is, whether this is believers or uh, to take advantage of themselves or pagans to make a case against Paul, is like, rejoice, celebrate. Jesus is being declared. Jesus is being proclaimed. Uh, and he cho chooses to focus on the fact that anyone saying that Jesus is the Messiah or the Christ, whether they're pagan or not, that's a reason to be thrilled about this and to be excited about it and to rejoice in it. Now, how easily can we feel threatened by those who out of envy, rivalry, or selfish ambition, stomp on us or take advantage of a situation to promote themselves. I can guarantee you that my natural response is not what Paul's was here. 
to rejoice and to celebrate. Whether this was Paul's initial response, we don't know, but that is what his response is here in the writing of this letter, and that's how he ultimately chose to respond. The Holy Spirit is capable of using words and actions of those that have horrible ulterior motives to draw others to, G to himself and to Jesus. The Holy Spirit can do that. It's not limited to those that are pure in heart in, in sharing Christ. But then I have to ask myself, have I always shared with pure motives? I haven't. Uh, I can't say that I always do. I want that to be the case, but I am a sinner redeemed by Jesus, being sanctified day by day, and that's not always the case every minute of every day. And so I'm grateful that the Holy Spirit is not restricted by my heart motivations. And that, in that way, I want to be grateful when that's true of others as well. I want to be able, along with the Apostle Paul, to always rejoice and celebrate when Jesus is proclaimed the Messiah. Verses 19 to 26, Paul is shifting the focus from the present situation he finds himself in to what the future may look like or what lies ahead, the unknown. Will he be released from prison or will he be put to death? He knows the Philippian church is praying for his deliverance. And Paul states here that he believes that's likely what's going to happen. However, the possibility of an execution could never be ruled out when you were in a Roman prison. Uh, that was always a possibility. They had the ability and would at times execute prisoners without warning or without any kind of due process. So Paul's concern is... First and foremost, you could see it coming out in this paragraph that whether Jesus Christ will be honored with what happens. He's more concerned about that than his own life. Whether it's by life or by death. Uh, and he says that in verse, um, let me see here. In verse uh, 21, 20, of full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body. That's what he wants to be the focus. Paul is surrendering his own desires to Jesus Christ. It's not about what Paul wants, but it's about what Jesus wants. And Paul wants the Philippian believers to have the assurance that regardless of what happens to him, it's ultimately good. It's all good. He says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. A familiar and quotable quote, but also significant. 
Paul acknowledges him that he believes that he'd be better off if he were dead. Not in the sense that he's depressed or suicidal or has his death wish on himself, but in the sense that he would be able, he would be with Jesus. And that's a lot better than continuing to live on this sin-cursed earth. But he also states that, the, that Jesus is the reason for continuing to live. It's really the, it's the only reason. Nothing else really mattered in the end. It was only Jesus Christ. That's why he wants to live. And that's why there would be gain in dying. So Paul continues that he's torn between his desire to live on earth or to die. And, and he does say then uh, that his desire is to go be with Jesus, that his true desire is to be with Jesus Christ, which means he would be departing this life through death. I find it interesting that Paul mentions nothing about going to heaven or the glories of the celestial city but rather what he anticipates most after death is being with Jesus Christ. That's, that's what his focus was. That's what the emphasis was. Can we say that for ourselves, that our ultimate desire is simply to be with Jesus, even above life itself? To ask myself, you know, like when is the last time that we have consciously thought about and longed simply to be in the presence of Jesus Christ? After Paul expresses this longing, he continues that it's quite certain that his life here on this earth isn't yet done. And he's excited to remain on earth and continue teaching, helping the Philippian believers as well as others to grow in maturity and joy in their faith because Christ is glorified by doing this. Again, it's not because it's a preference, but it's because Christ will be glorified by him willing to do this. The emphasis in all of this is on the glory that Jesus receives. There is nothing in here about Paul's own comfort, desires, preferences, or, or recognition. It is all about what honors Jesus Christ. He then concludes this chapter with verses 27 to 30, and he shifts now to the, away from himself and encouraging the Philippian believers. And I'd like to read verses 27 to 30 again here. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, 
engaged in the same conflict that you saw that I had and now hear that I still have. <clears throat> he wants to encourage the Philippian believers here to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel itself. Now, what does it mean to walk in a manner, walk or to live a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Now, Ephesians 4.1, we see a similar statement where Paul writes, I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. This word worthy carries the meaning of being deserving of and also the idea of carrying weight. There's a weightiness that comes with it. We are to live a life deserving of the gospel or a life reflecting the weightiness of the gospel. That's what it means to live a life worthy, uh, worthy of the gospel. None of us deserve salvation. The gift of salvation, but the gift of salvation deserves a response that in the way that we live our lives doesn't diminish the weightiness of the responsibility that comes from having and being, having been given such a priceless gift. We've been given something that is, that is truly priceless. And so how do we handle ourselves given the fact that we have that gift. We are to live in such a way that our life expresses the recognition deserved because we have this gift of salvation through Jesus Christ. Are we giving Jesus what he deserves, what he is worthy of in the way that we live our lives? There is no way that we can earn our salvation, that's not what I'm saying, but it's the response when we've been given something so priceless, like what can we do is the attitude. Then Paul gives three or four practical ways here of living a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. I don't know if I, actually I had noticed these before because they were highlighted in my Bible, but I don't remember when I had read them, and it certainly was fresh to me this time as I read it. But the idea, and he says, whether I'm coming to you or see you or I'm absent, that I may hear that you are, first of all, standing firm in one spirit. This indicates both a present reality, but also an ongoing action. So it's something that is true, but will require is ongoing as well. They were standing firm, but Paul is also encouraging them to keep on standing firm. The word standing firm, uh, another word that could be used there is contend, uh, which carries more of the context of defending or fighting for. But standing firm also suggests a rootedness in the gospel of and the truth of the gospel, and that it's unmovable by the latest attacks or attempts 
to explain away or around the more uncomfortable aspects. And then it's standing firm in one spirit, which indicates that the church body, the church family, was together committed to upholding this truth. It indicates solidarity within the church. And the opposition or attacks that were being experienced were coming from outside the church, not from within the church like we saw in the Corinthian church. Then he goes on. So he says uh, that we are to, we're standing firm in one spirit, but then it goes on, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So not only standing together in unity as a church, but they were also actively striving or competing side by side. Um, and when I say competing in terms of athletic type uh, word picture. And what a beautiful picture of the body of Christ, a brotherhood, a church family working side by side for the same thing. And the Greek word translated striving more literally means competing as in an athletic contest. With one mind, striving side by side is the analogy of a sports team working together to win against a common foe. Jude 3 kind of combines these two points that Paul is making here in Philippians. It says, Beloved, when I gave you all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith, which was once delivered to the saints. The, the contend was brought out in this first part, and then the striving the, uh, for the faith and the earnestly contending, competing for the faith is found here in the second aspect of, uh, of striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Paul is describing a team that is unified and fighting for the faith of the gospel. The Philippian church was already doing this, and Paul is encouraging them to keep on. And then he continues, not frightened in anything by your opponents. A paraphrase of this would be having the courage to face your opponents. Uh, courage is not necessarily a lack of fear but rather it is a choice to take action despite the fear that we have. Uh, it doesn't allow fear to stop us. And many times in life, we need to act in ways that we don't feel comfortable, that is outside our comfort zone. And when we face opposition for our faith, we simply don't need to cower in fear, but we can stand with courage. We can act with courage and with confidence because we know that even if we end up dying, which is the worst thing that could happen to any of us, if we die standing for Christ, we will then be in his presence. I mean, there's literally nothing to lose when we look at it that way, but not being intimidated or frightened by the opposition. And then he continues, it has been granted not only to believe in Jesus, but also to suffer for his sake. 
Some translations say it has been given, it has been granted. A more amplified or expanded translation paraphrase would include the idea that God has graciously granted, carrying an undertone of gladness and joy, that God has graciously granted that we're not only to believe in Jesus, but also willing to suffer. Not just willing to suffer, but will suffer. Paul is reminding the Philippian believers that the Christian life is so much more about, more than just simply believing in Jesus. Yes, that's the first step, and it's a critical step. We have to believe in Jesus. But God is graciously giving us the privilege of suffering for the sake of Jesus. And this concept does not resonate very well with our American sensibilities of freedom and rights. But that's the reality of the kingdom of God. Believe in Jesus and suffer for Jesus. Now, I left out a phrase between these two parts being that he granted to not believe but also to suffer, and that is it has been granted for the sake of Jesus Christ, not only to believe but also to suffer. It's for the sake of Jesus Christ. Any suffering that we experience for our belief in the gospel is for the sake of Jesus Christ. Jesus died for each one of us in order to deliver us from our sins and to reconcile us to God. Why would we be so averse to suffering for him? Even just a bit. Paul is calling the Philippians, as well as us, to keep their focus on Jesus Christ and what he did on our behalf, rather than our own comforts and desires. Our whole life should be lived in such a way that brings glory and recognition to Jesus Christ. He alone deserves it, and our lives, you know, whether we suffer or die, are in his hands, um, but Jesus is the one that deserves it. So the challenge for us this morning is to carefully think about and consider how do we respond to circumstances that are at odds with what we had planned for or hoped for. Paul set an example here of living all of life through the mindset of for the sake of Jesus Christ. He was the focal point. Everything was viewed in, the, in light of the gospel message of Jesus Christ. The reputation of Jesus and the, uh, and the message of gospel superseded all of the other desires of Paul. His own comforts and desires were of secondary importance and even, I would say, low priority. Whether in prison or when others were attempting to undermine him, he carried... Uh, he carried that, the message of the gospel to those that were around him. <clears throat> so, um, in, in fact, 
it, you know, his own deepest desires was to be in the presence of Jesus, whether, even though that would have meant death in his life. Paul then challenges the Philippian church family, which is, and ours today, to live in such a way our Redeemer deserves. That shows how much we appreciate his priceless gift of salvation. And to continue doing so by standing firm in one spirit, fighting for truth in unity as one, striving side by side with one mind for the faith, being a team working together in defense of the faith of the gospel, not to be frightened by anything, having the courage to stand to opposition and graciously accept that we're not only to believe, but to suffer for Jesus Christ. We live worthy of the gospel when we live for the sake of Jesus Christ rather than for our own sake or for our own benefit. I challenge you to ask yourself, that we ask ourselves, why do we do what we do in the coming weeks and months? Is it for the sake of Jesus Christ, or is it for some other reason? Let's stand together for prayer. Father, thank you for this message from Paul to the Philippian believers and on to us today. I pray that you would implant in our hearts this focal point of, of living life, of making decisions, of, of everything that we do, doing so for the sake of Christ, for the sake of Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. Nothing else is of importance in the end other than that. And I just ask that you would direct our steps, direct our, our lives, direct our actions in ways that honor you. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead, our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.